Father, I thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to share about LGBT in the church. And Lord, there's a lot going on that we are not prepared for. And um, Lord, I believe that education is one of those ways that we can not only uh, brace ourselves for what's coming, but also, Lord, to be redemptive. It's not just enough to protect ourselves, Lord. We want to be reaching out to others that we either don't understand or maybe even some of us might be disgusted with. And so, Lord, work on our hearts. Send your Holy Spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I have a great opportunity to be in the presence of a very dear colleague of mine. This is Wayne Blakely, who uh, helped start Coming Out Ministries eight and a half years ago, almost nine years ago. And then also we have Miguel Harris, who we've had the opportunity to work with in Peru and other places. It's an honor to, uh, to be with these men as well. So uh, anyway, if you have any questions for them, feel free to ask them. We want to talk about LGBT in the church and take a look at this photograph. It's shocking to me. I was in Belgium and I was coming up out of the out of the subway area and we hit the streets. It was a beautiful, gorgeous day. And I look up and I'm with people from, from Belgium and for them it was nothing. But I'm looking at this church and I'm going, what? And I go, oh yeah. Every year they put the gay flag on the Presbyterian church or the, the um, um, Protestant churches. And so right in the middle of the city, the biggest um, steeple that you could see, and they're waving the gay flag on that. And for them, they're very comfortable with it. The couple that I was with were Seventh-day Adventists, and to them, it was nothing. We're becoming anesthetized by the movement that's going on in the world. As a matter of fact, uh, Kezia, who's now working with Coming Out Ministries, when I met her two years ago in Cuba, we were talking, and I basically was hearing her testimony about how she was addicted to pornography, masturbation, and even premarital sex. She was actually having sexual relations with some of the uh, young men that were in her youth group at church. And I said, wait a minute, you do know what the Bible says about about sex, don't you? And she says, well, not really, because the church isn't talking about it. And so YouTube is talking about it. All the world is talking about it. But the church in its silence, I realize now, is giving permission for our young people to explore and to experience these things that God had never intended for us to do. I can see now how the, how the, the world is breaking down the borders, but the church is doing just as much by refusing to talk about this situation. And so I, ta- I use this as an illustration about LGBT and the church. Our identity drives our actions. And we know that because that's what the world is screaming now, is you are your identity. And a lot of people don't realize what's been slowly seeping into society for probably the last four generations. Uh, An overwhelming global issue. Religion doesn't have a prayer. When it comes to equality, LGBT activists and their uh, judicial allies have have made sure that sexual behavior trumps religious liberty every time. And you can see that in your own lives and how it's affected even in your own churches. What I've found now is that we have groups in every Protestant denomination that are driving and pushing this agenda. And I believe that that's been specific. We have these two positions in the church. We have the, uh, what is it, the West Moral Baptist Church that said God hates fags, fags die, God laughs. And then we have the other side, Jesus had two dads and he turned out okay. So what we found as we came into this ministry came back into religious culture, I I coming back at 40 years old after I'd been out for 20 years, is I thought that there was nothing more than rejection going on in the church. And then I come back and I find that 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 is still alive and well. They're either people rejected and think that we're going to burn in a hotter hell than everybody else. But now the other side is, is that, oh, it's no problem. God's fine with it. And that God loves homosexuals that are in monogamous relationships. And so now we have these two uh, opposing positions in the church. But what really is the truth? We also have kinship now that's, 
that's been around for 30 plus years and they are international and kinship is a group as a matter of fact when i was talking about in the in the commercial for the movie i said tell me lies lie to me I remember one day I had uh, walked into uh, the church culture and I had given my heart to the Lord, but I had also been in a relationship with a man and the Lord led me into realizing that I had to give up this relationship. So now I'm without a relationship. I'm still not straight. I'm struggling with this. I have another friend who's in the same position that I am. And I said, hey, look, I found kinship on, on the internet. And we looked at it and we said, fantastic, now I can have a boyfriend and Jesus. And so as I started looking at this, this website, I, I really didn't care much about what the Bible said about homosexuality anyway, but I did have a relationship with Jesus Christ. So my friend was looking at it and he said, well, look at the way that they've translated these verses. It just doesn't make sense. I go, I don't care. And he goes, no, really, Mike, take a look. I go, really, I don't care. Just tell me I can have a boyfriend and Jesus. And that was when I was like, lie to me. Tell me these lies. And I believe that many innocent people, just like myself, have been trying to find a way. How can I have Jesus in my life and still have the things of the flesh? And especially when the only thing you ever grew up with was same-sex attraction, and even I struggled with transgenderism, I wasn't necessarily thinking that there was a solution for my problem. Acceptance was the only solution for me, especially after 20 years of praying that God would change me. So again, thinking this, it made it very easy to start understanding and accepting and believing that I could have a boyfriend and that God would still accept that. I remember that my boyfriend was so shocked that I'd become an Adventist. He went out of town on a business trip, and when he came back, here his lover is a Seventh-day Adventist baptized Christian. And he did the research that I did not. And he said, you know, your church doesn't accept homosexuality. And I go, I don't care. I, really? I mean, I'm a hairdresser, okay? So he said, he said, look at this is what they say. And he showed me all this stuff. And I said, it doesn't matter. I didn't get baptized to be a, a, a straight person. I was baptized because I was following Jesus Christ. I didn't care what the Adventist message was. In my heart, sincerely in my heart, I was hoping that God would convert my boyfriend who was Jewish, who already understood the Sabbath, but I was hoping that God would convert him and that we would be this mighty team for Jesus, right? Okay, and so, you know, that didn't wear so well with him. And so because I was keeping the Sabbath and now I'm a vegan, you know, it interfered with a lot of our fun. And so um, eventually I was frustrated. I said to God, if you want me out of that relationship, you're going to have to do it yourself. I didn't even have the nerve to do it myself. And I said, if you want me out, you have to do it. And he said, all right, Mike, I'll get right on that. And about three weeks later, my lover and I were opening up a salon and we were in the space that we were going to decorate and we were sitting there and he had his arms around me and he said, you know, Mike, he said, the relationship has really taken a direction that I really wasn't ready for. He said, I need a break. And this peace came over me, and I knew that God was speaking and that he was intervening in my life. And this peace came over me, and we broke up. But then all of a sudden I went home, and I'm still not straight. I'm still heteros or homosexual. And I started, started to think to myself, well, I never know what it's like to love again. Am I just going to have to be single for the rest of my life? And then the tears started to flow, and I would sob. And this lasted for months. And as I was crying out, thinking, why would you ask me to leave something that was so good? And the Lord started to reveal to me not only the reasons why, but he started to comfort my heart. And as he started to comfort my heart, it was Jesus that was holding me. It was Jesus that was loving me. And for the first time, experiencing his love started to transform my life. Had I not gotten to that point, had I not realized that this was not God's intention, that I would be uh, comfortable in a same-sex relationship that was monogamous, I would never have invited Jesus to come into my heart so fully. And I believe that, that yes, the, the physical pull is so strong that it pulls us in one direction. As a matter of fact, many recovered homosexuals that become heterosexual and live that life 
can also relapse and fall back into that life. Why? Not because the power of God is still not restraining. It's the fact that God has given us free will. And the free will, he will never interrupt and go past that. And so the pull of sexuality, the pull of sexual experience is so strong that it can even pull us away and God still respects that. But that doesn't mean that he stops working, right? Even today, um, um, Dr. Jackson was talking about an everlasting love, that no matter what our behavior is, his love doesn't change. And I praise him for that because there were many times in my experience as I found out about kinship and was still struggling with a sexual addiction that I still had to keep coming back to God as I was broken, defiled, and filthy. And I asked him again, I go, Lord, do you still want me? And again, his answer was always the same to me. Yes, Mike, I still want you. And so that's what won my heart. That's what really convicted me that, you know what, he's in it for the long haul. And if he can do it, I'm willing to work out my salvation with him in that process. And so we were speaking at a, uh, at a uh, Mennonite church, and they have what's called the pink minnows. So the kinship for us is the same as, SDA kinship for us is the same as the pink minnows for the Mennonite church, and they have the same agenda. And so now we're seeing that in, across multiple uh, denominations that they're having this conflict in their churches as well. Two institutions that were established at creation. That was even discussed this morning in the sermon. Genesis 1, 27 and 28, so God created man and women. And then in Genesis 2, verse 3, he blessed the Sabbath day and sanctified it. So what about that? Now, we know that marriage is definitely under attack with, with the movement of the LGBT issue. And then how about the fact that heterosexual people haven't done such a great job with the blessing either? You know, we have polyamory. We have premarital sex. We have divorce that's the same rates inside the church as they are outside the church. And so we know that definitely marriage is under attack. And so what if God were watching the Christian church to find out how they deal with the one issue to know how we're going to deal in prophecy when we know that the Sabbath is under attack as well. Biology. It's interesting. Wayne and I were in Germany, and we were about to, to speak at this conference, and it was pretty much a pro-gay conference. In northern Germany, they were very, um, very uh, LGBT supportive, and we knew that. So we go to church the day before, and the secretary to the president picks us up. Well, I better not. Hello? Hello? <laughs> so... So here we were, here we were, we're at this church in Germany, we're at this church in Germany on the Sabbath, and, um, and the people that had hosted us, they, they brought us, and they introduced us to this couple, this lovely couple, and they were doctors, and they spoke fluent English as well as German, they were very highly educated, and, and the lady that was talking to Wayne and I kind of came into the conversation, and I could tell that Wayne was um, a little stressed by the situation and she was talking about how oh my husband and I are doctors and and we believe that this conference is is pathetic and worthless it isn't even necessary and I'm thinking okay yeah that makes sense if you're a doctor you understand biology right I don't have to explain that to you and, and then she was saying because it doesn't matter people should love who they want to love and I looked at her and I go really and she said yes and and, and had this like enlightened attitude that I wish I could imitate but um <laughs> I asked her that. I said, you're a doctor, right? And she said, yes, I am. And I said, well, the biology alone says that it's not right. I said, you can look at that. Of course, she wasn't that amused, and neither was her husband. And so that was just the beginning of our time there in Germany. <coughs> and I don't want to be condescending in any way about that, because as a practicing homosexual, I learned that that behavior was not only something that I um, uh, enjoyed, but it was also something that created an addictive drive for me. And let me explain. The thing that I wanted is I wanted love from men. I was rejected by my dad. I was rejected by the kids in school. They called me sissy, queer, and little girl. And so what I was desperate for is I needed the affection of men 
to be affirmed in my masculinity. Well, that kind of got twisted through puberty because when puberty comes, the sex that is the mystery becomes the attraction. I was raised by a single mother and three sisters, and so I knew everything about girls. I played jump rope and hopscotch and Barbie dolls with them, and I was rejected by the boys in school. So then when puberty came for me, the sex that was the mystery was actually my own. So then you can imagine as this became sexualized for me, as I came out in, uh, in 1981, when I was 20 years old, the only thing that I wanted is I wanted love from men. And that became sexualized through puberty, but I didn't want to engage in the sex act. Now, of course, when, when I would go out to the bar and, and you know these men would say these wonderful, nice things and I would go home with them, even the sexual um, situations I wasn't interested in, what I wanted was the holding, the loving, and the caressing. However, I realized very early on in the gay culture that if I didn't participate in the sex, I didn't get the love and the affection that I desired. How sad, because in the process, what was happening is that as I was trying to find somebody that would love me and take care of me, I realized that it was pretty vacant in the gay culture, that it was a, basically a dog-eat-dog -dog world. And, and if you understand cannibalism, it's a little bit like that. You go out to the bar, and basically you would look across the crowd and you say, wow, that guy's got you know, really nice eyes, or that guy's got really great hair. You know, you start picking out these pieces like cannibalism. And the idea of cannibalism it isn't just to satisfy my hunger. Cannibalism is about attaining your attributes. And if I have no masculinity of my own, that if I sleep with you because you've got great eyes, then I will attribute your masculine characteristics for myself. And so what happens is that two men who are, are vacant with their masculine identity, if you're looking to get something from me and I'm looking to get something from you and we're both vacant, we're never going to be able to satisfy that for each other. And that's what creates the addictive drive. So every night in the gay bars, it was about finding somebody else that could affirm my own masculinity because of my vacancy. And what I realized is that in the process of trying to find love and affection and affirmation, I found that it was vacant and so the addiction drove. Um, drove me for the next 20 years. So at the end of those 20 years being a sexual addict and acting out as often as three times in a, in a day and as many times as three or four times a week, it came down to this. If I was picking up somebody, somebody in traffic or in a grocery store or in a park, the bottom line was, listen, don't talk to me. Don't tell me your name. Don't tell me about your lover. Let's just get this over with. In my mind, the intimacy had become the thing that was the most elusive, but my addictive drive, which was a thing that I didn't even have the desire for, now was the whole desire. Can you see why homosexual practice, and let me make that clear, God does not condemn the homosexual. He con condemns homosexual practice because what it does is it creates cannibals right? That where you're hooking up and you're never going to find the one thing that God had intended for you to find, and that was uh, intimacy between one man and one woman, not only through the biology, but also how beautifully Thomas Jackson brought that about this morning about the protecting the heart of God, the image of God, which is that kind of love that doesn't use people, but it's a giving love instead of a taking love. Does that make sense? I think that was a little bit of a revelation for me even this afternoon. So let me explain while this is going on. So basically you're looking in suburbia and these are, um, you see the mom and the dad, they're with the babies, right? But would it surprise you to know that there's, wait a minute, she'll sit up in just a second, third mom or second mom, right? Three parents and two kids. They are the Steins. So just to give you an idea, this is what's now coming down the pike. They're now dedicating television shows to polyamory where they're featuring three different people in one relationship. So now that LGBT rights is on the scene and they've been given um, 
uh, they've been given the right to marry. Now we have other people on the fringe groups that are coming in and saying the same thing. So once we've torn down the walls protecting what marriage was, the institution between one man and one woman, now you have other people that are, other groups of people that are clamoring for attention and for acceptance as well. We also, I remember marching in the gay pride parades and I would see this little marginalized group in the back of the parades every year that I would march and they were called NAMBLA. And NAMBLA stands for male uh, man-boy love. Basically saying now that these people are coming forward saying, you know what, I was born attracted to younger men and so I should be given the same right to marry as well. And, and so I'm not trying to make the connection that homosexuals are pedophiles and that's not truth. There are just as many heterosexual pedophiles are th as there are homosexuals. And uh, what we find so shocking is that in Christianity people just make that connection. They think that if somebody's a homosexual that they're naturally a pedophile as well. So let's dispense with, with, that, um, with that lie. But it, again, it is true that there are people that are att attracted to that that are actually pushing, now that there's gay rights, there should be the right to actually engage in sex with um, underage uh, men or boys. And so this is what the world is full of now. You have love is love and gender is age blind. Some people are pedophile, get over it. And we see all of this being pushed forward. Now we have, did you hear about the little transvestite boy that was dancing in a gay club? And, and this is considered to be normal and natural. The Bible in Isaiah 520, it talks about how, how when good is evil and evil is good, right? That people turn uh, uh, bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Reparative therapy. We have this now, uh, this movement talking about the damage of reparative therapy, and we have, uh, we definitely get linked in with that. In the, in the Christian church, if you sit there and say that God can change somebody, you automatically get lumped with the reparative therapist. And these therapies are horrible. Here we go, we have a picture. I feel 100% fabulous. Gay cure really works. And here you have Christian and gay. I was harmed by anti-gay therapy. And we believe that. Fortunately for those in coming out ministries, none of us actually submitted to reparative therapy. And what those therapy modalities include is uh, hooking up electrodes to your genitals and that every time you look at male porn that they zap you so that, you know, you, you won't be attracted to gay porn. Or what was another one? Another one was to take a heterosexual man and to hold the homosexual um, naked as the father-son love uh, until the homosexual attraction passes. Give me a break. You know, that stuff just doesn't work. And, and, and another one where you take a, um, a, a bat and you start beating this pillow or this wall or whatever that is, and you, that represents your father, your same-sex parent that you have trouble with and, until the anger passes. Here's the difference that, that we promote. We're not trying to make gay people straight. It's not my job. I can't do that. I couldn't even make myself straight. But what we're talking about is not behavioral modification because behavioral modification is a good thing. You can learn to quit smoking. You can learn to over, quit overeating. But Jesus is interested in so much more than that. We're talking about an intimate God. He wants restored intimacy. And he knows that certain behaviors keep us from that intimacy. But here's the beauty of God is that he's not looking for behavior modification. He's looking for relational restoration. Isn't that what God is looking for? And so by telling somebody that, oh, you're gay, well, you should be accepted by that and God will understand, then what you've done is you've cut that individual off from knowing the repairing, the restoring, and the uh, intimate relationship that Jesus wants to have with each one of us. Do you see the connection there? Does that make sense? 
And so gay, now we have this Christian identity that I'm a gay Adventist or I'm a gay Christian. And I want to talk about that a little bit. And, and just the fact that it's a prefix now. It's a prefix Christian, putting gay in front of your identity in Christ. And so the Bible says that, that in Christ I'm a new creature. It says that the old things are passed away. Behold, everything becomes new. So if I'm going to sit there and talk about the fact that now I'm a Christian and put a prefix for it, the prefix is actually the primary identity that describes the latter. Wouldn't you agree? And so a prefix saying that I'm gay, first of all, and then I'm a Christian, lets you know that my primary identity is in my homosexual attraction. And I understand that there are reasons why people are attracted to the same sex. I still struggle with it today. But I deny it and I refuse to be identified as a gay Christian just because I have those attractions. If I'm not living that life, if I'm not living in that practice, then why would I want a, a sinful temptation identified as my prefix in Christ? And so let's give the example. All right, maybe some of you struggle with uh, adultery. You know, would you call yourself an adulterating Christian? Maybe some of you struggle with lying. Are you still a lying Christian? Right? Do you start to see how it just doesn't make sense? But what we've done is we've, um, we, we've kind of separated out the, the term uh, LGBT with, with the fact that it's still described in the Bible as sinful behavior. And so now we've tried to legitimize the fact that somebody has same-sex attraction when what we've done is we've negated the fact that it is an issue that needs redemption and that it's not unloving to point people to the healing that comes from Christ. But now what's happening is there's this motivation and this movement to say that if you say that change is possible, that that's hate. Let me give you a new uh, enlightenment that, that I received just a couple of months ago. Stop and think about it. What was the old attitude? The old attitude, right? According to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it talks about all the abominations that won't, won't be in heaven. And homosexual practice is in there. But what Christianity did is they took homosexuals out of that mix and they put it up here and they said, this is the sin that God just can't stand. This is the one that there's no hope for. As a matter of fact, uh, our colleague Ron was told that. He said, he, he, the pastor told his wife, he said, you know what, that kind can never change. And so basically this was the original lie that was spread. In the, and so then there was condemnation and rejection. On a Friday night, I was in a gay bar after I'd left the church at 20 years old. And as I was sitting there, I ordered my drink. And as I ordered my drink, there was a brother to the right of me and he ordered his drink and we we're sitting there and then this other gentleman walks up to the bar and he says hey you know happy sabbath to the bartender and i looked and then this guy looked and this guy goes oh yeah happy sabbath and i piped in too i go yeah happy sabbath and we realized that all four of us were ex seventh day adventists and we started to share our stories about how we were either kicked out of the church uh, or left the church or ignored out of the church and how sad that on a friday night the only place that we found that we could celebrate the sabbath was in a gay bar and of course i'm stretching that a bit but the point being is that the old attitude was that there was no way that they could be saved that they were condemned that way so then I come into the church 20 years later, and guess what? The message is the same. The message never changed, only now we're loving them. We're saying that you still can't change, and that you shouldn't have to change, and that God loves you. So the issue is the same, that gays can't change. But isn't that interesting? We went from hating them to loving them. But the problem is that we've denied the restoration power that God alone provides. Do you see the difference? Do you see how that the issue hasn't changed? We've just changed our attitude towards it. And I believe that just by loving someone isn't helping them because they're still lost, right? Do you see the difference? So here we have, Ye therefore, beloved, seeing you know these things before, beware lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. 
How sad that the church now, I believe the Adventist church is now dangling this carrot for people like me that definitely wanted to uh, uh, affirm that not only would homosexual be accepted, but that God accepts that too. And so we're misleading people. They're still lost. And isn't it interesting that I find um, a very... um, this amusing that this is actually the truth. Before homosexuality was sin, but now it's in. Do you see the connection? Scriptures that support the gay Christian mission. As I was talking with my, um, my boyfriend took me to the gay church and we were sitting in front of the gay priest. And she started to explain all of the different uh, scripture texts on homosexuality. And as I was sitting there as a hairdresser who didn't read the Bible at all, even I was enlightened by the Holy Spirit to know that that didn't even make sense. Some of the way that she explained some of the scripture verses to me, I said, come on, that's a stretch. You know, even though I wanted to affirm my boyfriend, even though I wasn't interested in, in leaving my boyfriend or my identity, I still could see the fact that even the lame way that she was explaining these scripture verses, uh, it wasn't really, uh, it, it wasn't even realistic to me. But I think that there are a lot of people that would buy into that, that for them it might be just the thing that they, that they needed to hear to affirm um, the direction that they wanted to stay in. So Acts chapter 10 and verse 15, what God has made clean you must not call profane. And so this is a very ambiguous text. This to me is not the, the text that I would hang on to to show that God would approve of homosexuality. How about Genesis 1:26? let us create humankind in our image. What is it they've even changed the wording of the Bible and they took mankind to make it humankind. So humankind is androgynous. It's not specific to a gender. And so therefore, not only does it approve of homosexual practice, but also transgenderism. Galatians 3 verses 23 to 29. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There's no longer slave or free. There's no longer what? Male or female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. So you can see how somebody would pull that text out of there to say what they want it to say. But we're not talking about the context of male and female. We're talking about the identity in who? In Jesus Christ. Okay, so let's talk about identity for a minute unless I've missed it. So identity was not a term until the late 40s, early 50s. And with a man named Alfred Kinsey who had done research, by the way, Alfred Kinsey was funded by the United States government and he's still protected to this day. But he actually was exposed for the fact that he was a homosexual pedophile masochist. And what that means is that he was doing a lot of his research to basically try to affirm and to promote his own attractions. What he did is he actually paid men to abuse, sexually abuse their own children. And he was paying them and he would give them stopwatches to record how long their orgasms were and what their behaviors was. As a matter of fact, some of his research showed that for a six-month-old baby girl, an infant child, that they found that this little girl had 23 orgasms within a 24-hour period of time. It's child abuse alone to keep a child awake that long for 24 hours just to see what kind of behavior they would have. And in his, and in his research, he found that um, what he determined was an orgasm was screaming, passing out, vomiting. And that's how he determined what an orgasm was for this child. Can you imagine that? And, and in his research, he used digital and oral stimulation. I'm sorry, brothers and sisters, but this is where we get our ideas for human sexuality now from the results of this man. He had a book that came out in the early 50s called Human Sexuality, basically talking about male sexuality. And a lot of the research, he said that one in 10 men are homosexual, but that research came from prisons. He was doing a lot of his research from the prisons. So it wasn't even taken from a normal populace. And then he was compiling all of this information that was already tainted. And that's where we get our sex education from. As a matter of fact, in Europe, they uh, have a new promotion 
of the sex education that they want to implement in the 10 countries of Europe, in, the, in Eurasia, uh, what's it called, the European Union. And basically from, uh, from zero to four, they want to teach children masturbation. They want to teach them not lustful masturbation. So they don't want, don't want to just teach them how to do it. They want to teach them how to enjoy it. So then from the ages of six to eight, they want to teach them homosexual practice. Let's just get it out in the open. Let's get it over with. And so what they'll do is they'll put the boys in one room and the girls in another room and let them experiment. And the idea is that the sooner they recognize that they're same-sex attracted, we can, you know, uh, not judge them and we can give them the freedom to be who they are. But here's what's really interesting is that you can educate and train somebody to be homosexual. There's a group of people in Afghanistan where what they do is they kidnap prepubescent boys between the ages of like 8 and 11 and what they do is they re repeatedly sodomize these boys and the idea is to groom them to be male prostitutes because in Afghanistan it's it's taboo to actually have sex outside of the marriage with another woman so if you have it with a boy I guess it's okay. But they interviewed some of these male prostitutes and they asked them, they said, you know, are you gay? And they said, some of them said, no, I was never gay. However, as I experienced that behavior repeatedly over and over again, I don't mind it. It's not a problem. And so you can actually train people in homosexual behavior, which I believe that when you take a prepubescent child and you expose them sexually, you awaken in them something that was innate that was naturally not to be explored. I was never molested as a child. Wayne was never molested as a child, but our colleague Ron Woolsey was. At four years old, he was molested by a male that was an adult, and that began for a four-year-old. Can you imagine that? A four-year-old, he became sexualized, and that became something that he fought for the rest of his life. For me, I never even had a sexual thought until I saw my two best friends engage in a, in a sexual um, um, uh, situation, but I was already 12 years old. And before that, it was disgusting to me. It was something that never even occurred to me. I remember my mother sat me down at 10 years old and told me the, the facts of life, and I looked at her and I go, that's ridiculous, nobody's ever going to do that. <laughs> you know, thinking that this was disgusting, right? Why would you put anything down there where you go to potty? You know, like that was in my, inside my head. But again, to point out the fact that children before puberty don't even have sexual thoughts. And so the results of what this man did, Alfred Kinsey, I believe that he's brought this onslaught around the world thinking that children are sexualized, which also has been the promotion of LGBT rights around the world as well. For as he thinketh in his heart, that's so he is, Proverbs 23, 7. So why would I sit there and call myself a gay Christian if I'm trying to leave that identity? And, and if I'm not practicing in that identity, even if I struggle with temptation, does that mean that I'm a homosexual? Of course not. Jesus was tempted until the very last moments of his life, but did he sin? You know the answer. What's the answer? Of course not. And so there has to be a difference between temptation and sin and behavior. And I think it's important to know that even if I'm tempted for the rest of my life with same-sex attraction, the fact is that I no longer practice that and God gives me the strength to keep me from going into that. As a matter of fact, the Lord's actually given me a healing to where I have attraction to the opposite sex. So now you can imagine what it's like to go through puberty, you know, twice, right? <laughs> so even though I still struggle with same-sex attraction, it's learning the power of Jesus Christ to hold me, to keep me from running back into that. And so just because I may have that temptation, I refuse to be identified by that. But let me take it just a little bit further. If I call myself a gay Christian, I remember that I went to these, um, as I was struggling with pornography as an elder in my church, I couldn't tell my pastor, I couldn't tell the, the leadership, and so I went to uh, Sex Addicts Anonymous classes about an hour away and the meeting was at six so that meant I had to be on the road by five and I did that for a year and I sat in a group with other men and sometimes women and we would sit there and we say hi I'm Mike I'm a sex addict 
you know, and then we would speak. What I found in that group is I found incredible transparency. I was so relieved to at least know that I wasn't the only one and that there were other people that were struggling. But what I didn't find in there, I didn't find uh, victory in my sin because every time I raised my hand, I had to say, hi, I'm Mike, I'm a sex addict. And while I understand the principle, the principle is, is that I recognize that I could be tempted at any moment and by verbally saying that I'm vulnerable, yes, that's necessary. But every time I said that, hi, I'm Mike, I'm a sex addict, it's just the same thing as if I said, hi, I'm a gay Christian. That means that I identify with the thing that I'm trying to leave. Do you see the conflict that I'm creating? And so the Bible says that whatsoever man thinketh in his heart, that's so he is. So if you keep saying that you're a gay Christian, then you continue to connect yourself to the one thing that you're trying to leave. So when I left that group, I remember being frustrated. And I, I said to God, I cried out to God, I said, Lord, this isn't working. And while I found some transparency, I'm not finding victory in my life. And it wasn't until I started to realize that my identity was no longer in my struggle. My identity had to be in my Savior. And as I put my identity in my Savior, because he said in Ministry of Healing, on the first page alone, page 17, he says that he, he restored men completely. He said physically, spiritually, and mentally. And I circled that in my book, in my margin. And I said, Lord, this is on you. You said that you could restore me because I can't. And what that did is it started to change that instead of thinking of myself identifying in my sin temptation, I now started to put my identity in Jesus Christ and I found victory once again. And so this is from Leonard Ravenhill. I think it's amazing. He says, oh, I'm just a saved sinner. And he said, that's like saying you're a married bachelor. That's like saying you're an honest thief or a pure harlot. You can't be a saved sinner. You're either saved or you're a sinner. And so you can't be a gay Christian, right? You're either gay or you're a Christian. And I don't mean to be offensive in any way or to, to denigrate people that have same-sex attraction or that choose to be gay because, you know what? I respect anyone that chooses to be gay. I get it. But, you know, you can't be both. And that's the one thing that I realized through the Word of God is I had to make a decision. Was I going to keep my boyfriend or was I going to keep my Savior? And that conflict was really, really difficult. It wasn't like a light switch on the wall that I could just flip for my convenience. What I had to do is I really had to struggle this out and through finding these precious promises that God had to give me not only truth, but he had to give me truth that was bathed in love. And that's what I found in Ministry of Healing. Let me tell you the difference. We may have the truth, but it's the way we present the truth that I think that makes it so offensive. And the Christian community has earned the reputation of being haters and judgers. And forgive me, if you will, I belong to a black church, I'm in a black conference, and, and, and it's very evident the, the, the prejudice that's against homosexual practice or whatever. I mean, it's even a very taboo topic to talk about in black churches. However, what I do see is that not only do we have the truth, but the truth has to be better than what the world's offering. One of the things that I realized 18 years ago is as desperate as I was to hang on to my identity and my boyfriend, as I started to leave those things because that's what God's word demanded, I started to realize that what he was giving me was far better than what I got in that world. How is it that I could be a single man after 18 years of being a Christian and still choose to live this life rather than my sexual attractions? There was one night I was coming home from a um, from Sabbath. I was in my Sabbath suit and I took my friend to a store. She had kids and she wanted to get some stuff to entertain them with in the evening. And so they didn't have a bathroom. Simple as that. And I thought, well, I need to find a bathroom. So I left that store and I went to the first store that I thought was open that had a bathroom. Simple as that. It happened to be a, a biker bar like I didn't know. Right. And so I spent my 20s and 30s in gay bars three nights a week. That was my life. And so as I run into this bar to use the bathroom, I was in and out in five minutes. 
I'm still in my Sabbath suit, right? But as I go in, I see the lights, you know, the disco balls going, and I hear the music. I can smell the alcohol and the cigarettes. And I went into the bathroom, and I came out. That's how quick it was. I went back to the store. I picked up my friend. I dropped her off at her house, but I live in the country. I live in the Smoky Mountains. And so for that 12-mile ride into the woods, into the dark woods where there's no street lights, there's no houses, it's just my little lonely log cabin in the woods. As I'm driving out there, I thought to myself on a Saturday night at 9.30, I go, what am I doing? I go, I should be waking up for my disco nap, ready to get on my clothes, ready to set the stage, put the music, you know, on low and put the lights on and, you know, get ready to have an illicit situation and go out to the bar. And as I'm having the struggle inside my mind, and now I'm an elder in the church, I'm a Christian, right? I've been a Christian for about six, seven years. All of a sudden, I started to have this dialogue with God. And Isaiah 118 says, come and let us reason together. He gave us intelligence. He said, I'm not here to drag you into heaven kicking or screaming. It has to be your decision each and every time. But then Jesus said, didn't I relieve you from a neighborhood where you live within two miles of five gay bars? Didn't I relieve you from an addiction where you would get on the internet and you would have an illicit lover over within 15 minutes? Didn't I get you debt free? Didn't I move you to the country? Didn't I? And he started to list all of these wonderful things that in my relationship with Jesus Christ that I had been experiencing. And as I pulled into my driveway that night, I said, you're right, Lord. This is my decision. I love my life. And even though I was distracted for a moment by the things that used to call my name for 20 years, that it was my decision to pull into my drive and to go to bed at 10 o'clock on a Saturday night in the arms of my Savior. Every night that I go to bed, I say, Lord, if you got a woman for me, you better get her ready because I come from a bad history. <laughs> I said, but Lord, if you don't, I'm okay. How is it that a relationship with Jesus Christ and the, and the intimacy that he provides for me is still far better than anything I've ever experienced before? And I say, Lord, if you'll just be with me, I can do this. If you don't have someone for me, I'll be all right as long as I have you. He's the last voice or he's the first, he's the last person that I speak to at night and he's the first voice that I hear in the morning when I wake up and you know what he's far more faithful to me than I am to him but he reasons with me and he reasons this out for me and helps me to understand again that this is my choice and so if somebody identifies as gay and if that's their choice I have to respect that and it's not my position to condemn them because you know something it's my position to let them know what the love of Jesus does and I have the right to show them what that's like in my life because people have looked at me and they make judgments too and they say oh you know there's no way that you can be straight and you know it's just a matter of time before you go back into the gay life and you know what I can't argue with them because that's their judgment of me but I don't have the right to make the same judgment of them either I have to show them. As a matter of fact, Ministry of Healing, I keep coming back to that. I hope they'll write that in your notes. That, I believe, is the textbook to healing. I hated that little book. It would sit on my <laughs> shelf, right? Little ugly red book. You, you have a bunch of them, right? And then the title alone, of course, it's a turnoff. You know, if the only book she ever read was the autobiography of Elizabeth Taylor, like, that's not going to pull much, uh, much of your attention. But the, even the title, Ministry of Healing. And in that book, I think it's around page 150, it says that Christ's method alone brought lasting results. And so there you have a formula. You know, a lot of times I would say to God, you give me the formula, I can follow it. And the formula says that Christ's method alone brought lasting results. There you go. And so I looked at it and there were four distinct things that Christ did that I believe really helped me. Number one, he met people where they were. And so guess what? If you have a situation with a transgender person and, and, and their name is Heidi when really they're a man, then guess what? You're not hurting anything to call them Heidi. If that continues to keep the walls down so that they can hear what you're saying, so that they, they know that you love them, that's what they need to hear. 
And so the second thing that Christ did is he met them where they were and then he ministered to their needs. What's their need? They need to see Jesus Christ being lived out in somebody's life. They need to know that Jesus Christ isn't this pariah or someone that hates them. And so guess what? That's going to take time. Not only is it going to take time to meet them where they are, but then to minister to their need and to show them who Jesus Christ is. As Wayne says, you might have to go over to your neighbor's house and knock on the door and invite him to dinner. But don't put your Bible at the end of the dinner table thinking that you're going to have a Bible discussion after the first meal. It's going to take several meals to not only win their confidence, which is the third step. The third step, right? First step is meet them where they are. Second step, minister to their need. Third step, win their confidence. And that comes over time. And then the fourth step is then bid them to follow Jesus Christ. Let me give you an example. Yeah. Let me give you an example. There's this uh, wonderful young lady. Her name's Lisa. And probably some of you would know her. Um, and so she was studying with this gay couple for two years. Two years. Every Friday night, this gay couple is in her house, Friday night. And she called me, and she was panicked. And she said, listen, Mike, what do I do? They want to talk about, they want to study about homosexuality. And I said, well, <laughs> what's the problem? And she said, well, I've been studying with them for two years. I purposely avoided it. I wanted them to know the love of Jesus. And you know something? I really love them now. They mean a lot to me, and I don't want to hurt them in any way. And she said, um, you know, the two guys, they've accepted the Sabbath, the state of the dead. And these guys are so excited about Jesus Christ. They said, hey, we're ready to be baptized. We want to be baptized. And Lisa's like, okay. And she's like, is, is there any reason why we couldn't be baptized? And, and, and before she could answer, they said, is it because we're, we're gay? And then their comment was, well, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? And she said, well, it hasn't been my issue, so give me some time. You know, let me study it, and I'll get back with you. And they said, fine. They trusted her. And I, and I said to her, and I believe it was the Holy Spirit because I'm not that bright, but the Holy Spirit impressed me like, wait a minute. If you've been studying with them for two years and the Holy Spirit has been working in your living room on Friday night and you love them and you don't want to say anything to hurt them, I said, why don't you let the Holy Spirit discover that for them? I said, instead of you studying it and them getting it secondhand, why don't you give it to them firsthand and just say, you know what, because you're interested, let's study this out together. And that's what she did. The following week they got together and because they were friends, because... They had, or she had their confidence. They trusted her. And instead of making her own comments, instead they opened up the word and they started to, to discover it themselves. And every verse that they went to, the reaction of these two men was, oh my, oh my, oh my. She didn't have to say a word. The Holy Spirit was doing his job, but she did her part. She was doing the method of Christ. She, she met them where they were. She, she ministered to their need. She won their confidence. And then she bid them to follow Christ. Do you see the process? So it's not like a microwave gospel. You know, we can't just pop them in the microwave and think that, okay, you're ready to leave your lover. It takes time. We have to invest in people and let them know that they matter. What is it, Wayne? You matter, you belong, and you are loved. Then what happened? I'm not sure. I don't know the end of the story. But <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me ask you this. Let's give you, the, let's give you a, a synopsis. What if they said, no, we're not going to leave? What if we're going to stay in our relationship? What if they have children, mortgages, car payments together? All right, raise your hand if you're married in this room. What if your relationship was illegal to God? How easy would it be for you to walk away from that? Right? And, and so these are real concerns, and I, I'm really glad that you brought that up because all of that has to be taken into consideration. And let's say that you studied for two years with a gay couple, and they decided, you know what? We're gay. That's who we're going to be. Then what should your response be? Okay. It's your right. That's right. We still love you. Come back next Friday. Let's continue to study. And you know what? It's not my job to change you. 
It's His job to change you. But my job never changed. My job is to love you right where you're at and to be that good Christian for you. And if I've got a two-year relationship with you and I love you and you love me, then we can weather this through. And even if you never change, it shouldn't change the fact like, well, oh, I'm sorry, there's the door, see ya. And all of those two years was a waste? I don't think so. And even if at that night they weren't willing to give their heart to the Lord, that doesn't mean that I didn't do my job. My job is just to plant the seeds and water them, isn't that right? And I may not be able to bring in the harvest, but let me tell you, they won't miss, they won't forget Lisa for a long time, right? Is that fair? Okay. All right, how, how far open does a door have to be for a snake to get in? And how much of the snake can get in, right? Let's see, if your, if your door was gapped this much, how much of that snake could get in? All of it, right? And so we have to recognize that if we, if we sacrifice the standard of God, then what we've done is we have compromised to the point where the whole, the whole snake can get inside. And I believe that we have to hold that banner up. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I see this verse all bathed in intimacy. The intimacy that Christ alone wants with each one of us. And you know what? I, I'm not the only one that struggles with being single. Raise your hand if you're a single person in this room. No, you guys are young. You got, you got testosterone and hormones that are raging through your body. You know, mine's weaning and, and giving away. And so I still, I still struggle with, with these sexual thoughts that come in my head. But I also believe that if God can do it for me, he can do it for you. And he can give you the same singleness. And I loved what Dr. Jackson was talking about today about the fact that it's that relationship with Christ. When you have that relationship right with Christ, you don't need anything else. And then that's when you're ready for, for something more. And who knows what God has in store for your life. One of the, when I was at GYC, and one of the things that I really see as an issue is two beautiful, well-educated women came up to me, and they were sobbing. I mean sobbing, the snot cry. And they thought that they had missed another year of not being able to find a husband because here they were, they were at GYC thinking this is the best pool of single Christian men that I could find, and it didn't happen for me again. It was on the final day. And I looked at them, and, and I could see their pain, and I could see their anguish, and I thought to myself, wow, how come I don't feel that way? And, and I really started to take stock of, of my own life, and in the last 18 years, and there have been a few women where the Lord has brought to my attention, and I thought, wow, I could actually see myself in a relationship with them, in a marriage with them. And you know what? Eventually it didn't work out, and the Lord took them away. And as I'm looking at these young women, and of course, for them, they have concerns. They're near 30. They want to have families. They want to have children. And the only, the only thing that came into my mind is I thought, all right, well, you want a godly man. You know, that's why you came to a godly place, to find a god, godly man. And I thought, if your focus is all about family and getting married and having that right guy in your life, then your focus is still off of Christ. And if you put your focus back on Jesus Christ, then two things will happen. Either, number one, you'll get so close to Christ, and this man will show up, and he'll see your dedication to Christ, and guess what? You'll be the right woman for him. Or what if you got so um, um, invested in working for Jesus Christ that all of a sudden you found yourself 60 years old, and you're beholding Jesus coming in the clouds, and you never worried again about whether you had the intention to be married and to have a family? I don't know what that is for you. I don't know that what that is for each person, but I do know this, that when you're pining and wasting precious time wishing that you were married when you're not, 
then the devil's got you. He's discouraged you to the point where you're not even effective in working for God. And so if the affection and the attention is in the right place, then I believe that God can do miraculous and wonderful things for you. I have a friend, she's a single mother of three, and she has this piece of paper on her mirror, and it says, I want a man so hid in Christ. Oh, no, 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 no. let me take that back. I want to be so hid in Christ that a man would have to find him to see me. Isn't that beautiful? I want to be so hid in Christ that a man would have to find him to see me. Isn't that beautiful? And so two things will happen. Either you'll find that right man because God will be able to, to, to reveal that to you, or you'll be so dedicated in ministry, you'll still live a successful and godly and a good life and a fulfilled life. You know, the Bible gives blessings for people who are single. And, and I think that we put this unrealistic expectation on single Christian people. Oh, who are you dating now? Oh, you know, you know, oh, a pretty girl like you and you're not married yet. I mean, we say these things and you don't even know the power of what you're saying. You don't think that person knows they're single? It's like somebody coming up to me and saying, oh, Mike, what happened to your hair? It's like, really? You don't think I know, right? Oh, how come you're so short? Whatever that is, it's like we don't realize the damage that we do to individuals with even those simple little comments, right? Anyway, I don't know where that came from. <laughs> Ah, I want to share with you this video, but I can't because there's no sound, so we're just going to have to bypass it. But it's really great. So what's wrong with this picture? Oh, did it come up? Yeah. Anyone see what's wrong with this picture yes. other than Wayne? Okay, yes. Paris. So what does that mean? What's wrong with that? What's wrong? Doesn't Jesus want to cover my sins? I'm picking on you, Paris. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> 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 he cleans us up and uh -huh. then gives us his perfect right. Okay, did everybody hear that? Yeah. Right, does that make sense? Yeah. But this is the picture that we see and everybody like, you know, oogles over there and they go, oh, isn't that compassionate? Isn't that wonderful? But Jesus doesn't want to cover up our sins. Uh -huh. We have to recognize our nakedness. Isn't that right? I, I love this, this verse. In Genesis 3, 7, 11, it says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. What are we talking about? They had sinned, right? That's right. It said, Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And what I love about it, uh, the compassion of God is it even comes through the revelation of their sin. Do you think God knew what they did? Do you think it escaped his attention what was going on when Eve was being tempted? I, I would have loved to just snatch that fruit right out of her hand, but God had to allow her free will to take place. Isn't that right? But even after they'd sinned, even after they had implemented the plan of redemption where Jesus had to die on the cross and live a perfect life, Jesus' response to them instead of judgment is like, what'd you do this time? Instead it was like, where are you? Right? Who had separated themselves from Christ? They did by their circumstances. And isn't that compassionate that God didn't condemn them? He just said, where are you? I, I'm sorry. I, I just see so much compassion in that. And, and what is it? He said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. Revelation 3.18 says, I advise of you to buy of me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I have to anoint your eyes so that you may see and so how like the devil because he wants to expose us but isn't that beautiful that Jesus wants to cover us right it's the devil that exposes us and makes us naked but it's Jesus that wants to clothe us 
denying the power of Jesus Christ. Acceptance of the gay Christian or approval of homosexual practice is to say that the word of God is null and void and that Jesus is all love and no power. Making Christ impotent is job number one for the devil and he knows that diluting the righteousness, restoration in man, is going to be the devil's throwdown on the issue to draw men away from the sanctification process that is needful for heaven and communion with God the Father. Every time that I was in um, struggling with my temptations, as, as a matter of fact, young brother, would you come up here? Can I use you as an example? <laughs> it's not a speaking part, so all you have to do is just stand there, all right? So one day as I was struggling with my, with my pornography, and, and, and the struggle was deep, and it's all right, just stand there. You'll be all right. <laughs> I'll be the villain, you'll be the good guy. So, so in the situation, I, one day as I was struggling with temptation, and it was coming, and I knew, I knew that this was wrong. And, and again, still knowing that I was um, a Christian, because before I was a Christian, it didn't matter. But now I'm a Christian. And, and just then I said, you know what? I don't care what it does to Jesus. I'm just going to indulge it. And so for the next hour or so, I indulged it. Of course, masturbation included that. And as soon as it was all over, of course, the guilt and the condemnation came in. And I prayed the only prayer that I knew how to pray. I said, Lord... Will you show me what my sin does to you? Just show me what my sin does to you. Because I was so cavalier. I didn't care what it did to my Savior. It was a few days later, and in my meditation time, I all of a sudden had this image in my mind, and, and, and sometimes the Lord will do that for me. I'll have my devotion, and I'll think about what Jesus accomplished for me on the cross. And all of a sudden, I get these images in my mind, and the next image that I had is, can I have your wrist? This one. And, and, in, and in this meditation, I'm just holding somebody's wrist. <laughs> I'm thinking, well, how silly is that? And I'm not holding their hand. I'm just holding their wrist. Well, whose wrist am I holding? And in this image, I look down the arm of the wrist that I'm holding, and, and I look into the face of Jesus. And as I'm looking into the face of Jesus, he's looking at me, and I'm looking at him, and he can read my mind, and I can read his mind. And when I look into his eyes, I see nothing but goodness and love for me. It's, it's a depth an intimacy that's just so mind-blowing. I, I struggle to look away, but it's so intense that I just can't stop beholding his love for me. There's nobody else in the room or the situation. It's just me and Jesus. And that love for me is so intense. And then I realize that, that he's not standing up, that Jesus is actually lying down. And that he's lying down. And I'm thinking, why am I not holding Jesus' hand? Why am I holding his wrist? And I look down and Jesus reveals to me through this look. He says, Mike, because you indulged pornography the other day, he said, I have to die for that. Because of what you did in that one hour, you were so cavalier, you didn't care what mattered or what I had to go through. He says, I now have to die for that. And I recognize that Christ died once for the, for the sins of all mankind, isn't that right? But the fact that I asked him what my cavalier sin did to him, he was willing to show me that. So it's now my job to take that spike and to run it through his wrist because of my behavior, what I did. And I look into his eyes and I expect condemnation. I expect judgment and rejection. But instead, I still see this face of love. And just then, he turned his face away from me and he just looked straight forward. And as he looked straight forward, it wasn't a rejection. It wasn't like, I'm so disgusted with you, Mike. Oh, again, I have to go through this. Instead, what it was, was it was a dedication to me that was so deep and profound. It was a determination. It's like, all right, I'm ready. I'm ready, Mike. I'll take this for you. And that broke my heart. Thank you. And what that did is it showed me. 
it showed me not only what my sin did, but it, it, it helped me to realize that, that what I was doing, I was breaking this connection between my Savior and me. It's not the sin that God finds so disgusting. What he finds so disgusting is the fact that he created you to be in an intimate relationship with him. And that what sin does is it, it interrupts this ability to relate intimately to me. And that by allowing this sin to come in, not only did he create me, but then he redeemed me back after sin came into the world. And so he said, the reason why sin is an abomination isn't because of you and what you've participated in. God sees it all the time. He sees it how many times a day by countless millions around the world. But he recognizes true abomination is anything that interrupts my ability to relate to my creation. Not only did he create you, but then he redeemed you. Wouldn't that be an abomination to you if you sent your child to die for somebody else and they still chose death instead? Do you see the power of that? And so I had to understand the true definition of what an abomination really was. Isaiah 5.20, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Why? Because it sells you out. To sit there and say that God's word is null and void, then what you've done is you've cut me off from the opportunities for salvation and restoration and an intimate relationship with my Savior. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, and we talked about this earlier. The one attitude that Wayne and I came back into the church culture was, was that, that God hated gays and that they were going to burn in a hotter hell than everybody else. And, you know, that's the message that we got. But why wasn't anybody talking about verse 11? And such were some of you. And you know what? I'm in pretty decent company because guess what? You may not struggle with same-sex attraction, but I guarantee you, you could probably find something in that list that it would apply to you. And so instead of isolating me or ostracizing me, why not come from an attitude of Christianity where, you know what, brother? I don't struggle with what you struggle with, and I got my struggles too. But Jesus says in verse 11 that he's got a way out. And you know what? Let's help each other get there. And you know what that does is it takes a condescension of Christianity out that I've arrived and I've been doing this. And you know what? You poor lowly sinner, you probably need a savior. <laughs> Do you see the difference in that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And wouldn't that appeal to you if you had somebody that was willing to get alongside of you and just say, hey, we can find this out together. And I don't have it perfectly because you know what? The minute I start seeing Christians trying to act perfect, it's pretty easy to see their downside, right? Yeah. But what if I told you that I was vulnerable? What if I told you that, you know what, I'm in the process of, 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 uh, of sanctification just like you are? Wouldn't that change it for you? And instead of thinking that I have to be just like you and be perfect and be just like you, instead I can be myself and that we can find this out together. We only need one Savior, right? But we have a responsibility. We have, I, I believe, we already have a, um, 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 what do you call it? A reputation. We already have a reputation. And that what we've done for years is we've used the Bible to bust people over the head and to tell them that they're lowly sinners going to hell. And that, you know, that didn't work for them then. And it's not working now. And I believe that the devil has set us up to expose us now to now we are the ones that are the haters. We have to have another game plan. But that game plan isn't to give up the word of God because behavior modification is a good thing. Right? And you can change things, but we have to offer something better to the world. Otherwise, you're not giving them anything. You might be able to give them truth, but that truth has to be better than what they're being given today in the world. This is our vision at Coming Out Ministries, to ignite an unquenchable movement, restoring all men and women back to the image of their creator, God. So what is the church? What is the state of the church today? This is something that I found. Look at this. A liberal church says that you are welcome here and you do not have to clean up your life. 
And a legalist church says that you are not welcome here until you clean up your life. But Jesus says, you are welcome here and I will change your life from the inside out. Isn't that beautiful? So 2 Timothy 3 verse 5, I believe, is the the capstone for the pro-gay movement in Christianity. It says, they have a form of godliness, but deny the what? The power. It's one thing to be loving, and that represents the first part, because God is love. And Dr. Jackson made that very plain today, that God is love, but he's also power. And that power is a transformation. And you may not struggle with same-sex attraction. Your struggle might be something else. But the power that you're experiencing in your walk of life has to be available for everyone. And that if God calls it a sin, he'd better have the answer for it. Otherwise, he's no God at all. And that was what I said to God as I started walking this walk away from my boyfriend and walking into a relationship with Jesus Christ. There were no resources in our denomination. There was nobody talking about the victory that could be found. But God was faithful to me and that he was willing to show that to me. And as I began a ministry, I met Wayne Blakely. My pastor actually showed me an article that he had written for the review. Was that your first one? And when I read that article, I was shocked. I thought, you mean there's another person that came out of homosexuality and became an Adventist? And as I started talking to Wayne, we started to find that there were other people as well. And that's how Coming Out Ministries was born. Because we realize that the power of God is still alive today. But maybe many of you don't realize that. A lot of people don't know that those options are still available. I believe that this is the pro-gay movement in Christianity. Isaiah chapter 4 and verse 1. It says, And in that day seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own bread, we will wear our own apparel, only let us be called by thy name, to take away thy own report, our reproach. And so what does a church represent? Right? A woman is represented by a church, right? And so what, what, is, uh, what does the bread represent? I think I have it on here. Sure enough. Ta-da! Right? Bread is the word of God. Isn't that right? And then what is our own apparel? The garment, the robe, the righteousness of Christ. And so let me break this down if I can. Let me go back again. Oops, too far. So seven women, seven what? Churches, right? A church says we will take hold of one man, being Jesus, and saying we will eat our own bread. What does that mean? We'll interpret the Bible the way we want to, right? And we'll wear our own apparel. What does that mean? We've rejected the righteousness of Christ, and we have our own righteousness. And says only give us your name. And what is his name? Christian, that's right to take away our reproach. I believe that this represents the pro-gay movement in Christianity far more than anything else. And what it does is it destroys that power that's in Christ. So let me go past this again. I may actually get through this whole presentation. So membership and leadership. And so here we are now. Now, we can't fight it. It's coming. There's no turning away from it, but we have to be able to meet it head on. I love how my colleague Ron Woolsey talks about how the church should be like a hospital. All right, follow me on this, and I'll try to break it down. In a hospital, you have two kinds of people. You have health professionals, and you have those that are sick. Isn't that right? What would a hospital be if you didn't have any sick people? Closed. It'd be closed, okay? All right, and so a church is the same way. We have two kinds of people that are coming in, and I'm not in any way making any judgments about this, but you have people that that accept the Bible, that are living according to that Bible, right, and those principles, and those are the ones that are teaching Sabbath school, those are the ones that are doing the sermons, those are the ones that are leading out, and they are baptized members. And so a lot of times the question is, you know, when do we baptize homosexuals, and can't we? 
And so here's my understanding. It's just like a hospital. What would happen in the hospital if all of a sudden you put the sick in charge of healing the sick? They would die, okay? They would die. And so here's the problem. We need people that are grounded in the word of God to be able to minister to those. And so somebody that's actively living a homosexual life is not ready for membership. They're not ready for baptism. However, they belong in our churches. They should feel comfortable. They should feel welcome. They should feel like they have a belonging. But they're not ready for leadership because leadership gives them a vote. It also gives them a voice and it gives them influence. And so we have to make sure that we have the, 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 uh, uh, the, the line drawn very clearly, but they should feel welcome and they should feel loved. And so let me take for an example um, a woman that was a prostitute and an alcoholic and a pill popper. And she comes to church and she's stoned and high all the time. What job do you think she's really appropriate for? Changing diapers. That's the best they could give her. You know what? You can go to the baby's room. It was a huge church and they said, you can change diapers. And she said, you know what? I was changing diapers for Jesus. You know, she's changing these baby diapers for Jesus. And all of a sudden, guess what? She started to feel important. And so she started to drink less. She wouldn't drink at church and she would only drink at home. And she would say to God, she goes, Lord, I, I, I need my drink. I need my drink. And he'd say, read the word. And she'd say, but I need the alcohol. And he'd say, read the word. And she said, but I need the alcohol. He goes, hold the glass and read the word. So while she's drinking the alcohol, she's reading the word of God. And as she's reading the word of God and going to church and changing those diapers, then one day somebody said, hey, would you like to help out in the puppet, sh in the puppet show? I just need you to work the hand of this one puppet. And as she started to work the puppet, she was really good at that. And then one day she was the, the puppet master and she was doing the plays for the little kids or whatever. And one day she was standing up there with her glass and her Bible. And she said, wait a minute, I'm a teacher. I don't need this anymore. And you know, that's the process of what God is. And there's a process to that. There definitely is a work that we can give people that aren't ready for baptism. But as they are following the word of God and as they're finding change in their life, what does the Bible say? Meat, showing meat for repentance. Right? That means that a gay couple will have to split up their home. That means that a gay couple that has children, they're going to have to get divorced to be able to be ready to have membership in the church. And that's a very painful and difficult process. It's going to take time. And it's going to take time for them to get to that understanding. And your question may be, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. Why would you say that divorcing a same-sex couple that have children, how would you say that that's beneficial for the children? Let me give you an example. I was talking to a young woman named Lisa who, who's also working with Coming Out Ministries, and she was a lesbian for about 15 years. She was in a relationship. She was, she was now starting to read the Word of God, and she was convicted that she needed to, to leave her girlfriend. Well, her girlfriend was um, infirm. She'd had back surgery. She wasn't able to work. Lisa was the breadwinner in the relationship, and Lisa's lover also had a daughter that was 15 years old and pregnant with a, with a uh, disabled baby. And she's saying, Lord, I can't leave her because... You know, I have to support them. They, they rely on my monetary existence, you know, to be able to, you know, to stay safe. And the Lord said to her, he said, if you don't leave, I can't reach her. Do you see the difference? Even in a gay relationship, if we live according to God's word, that even splitting up a home to do it to, 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 um, to follow God's word allows the blessing of God to come in there. While we're still living in a sinful situation, God's hands are tied from the blessings that he wants to give to your family or to that family. And so doesn't that make sense that even in a situation like that, God was telling Lisa, if you don't get out of that relationship, I can't help them. And that starts to help me understand that even when to me it doesn't look right, why would you split up a perfectly, perfectly good home that was loving that has children? 
when we live according to the word of God. Let, let me take an example of a, a couple that's just living together. Maybe a couple living together, they're heterosexual. Maybe they have two or three kids. And you say, listen, if you, if you don't get married, you're not ready for baptism. And what if they realize that the only connection that they have is these three children? You know, all of a sudden they stop doing the drugs and the alcohol and they realize that they're not meant to be together. If they were to split up that home, they were ready to be baptized if they weren't ready to be married. And God still can put a blessing in that. Does that make sense? Church culture, men's ministry. I don't want to be running around the woods like a bunch of gay men. So let me tell you um, the reaction that I had when I came into my church. Um, so the church I was baptized in, I, I just want to say this. I was baptized into a, a black Caribbean church. And let me tell you something. I experienced an immense amount of love in that church. And so when I moved to Tennessee, I didn't have any problem sharing what I'd been through. And I told everybody freely, well, this white church, and I can say that because I am, this white church, their response to me was very much different. I went to the pastor asking for a men's ministry. And they said, well, you know, we'll make you the head of it. And I said, no, no, I need a men's ministry. I need to know how to relate to men in a non-sexual way. And they said, oh, well, we'll make you the head of it. Or he said, okay, I get it. He said, why don't you come and, and give your idea to the, to the group? There was a, a local um, camp where we could go camping, Father's Day weekend. I had a speaker arranged that could come and talk to the men about men's issues. So I, I, I brought it up to the team, and there was this highly esteemed doctor on the board, and he sat there, and he looked right at me, and he pointed at me, and he said, I don't want to be running around the woods like a bunch of gay men. And the pastor didn't defend me, neither did the head elder. They allowed this man to say what he said to me. And I got in my car, and on my way home that night, after I'd been in the church for, for four or five years now, I said to God, I hate your church, and I hate your people. And the Lord said to me, so why do you go? I said, well, I go because that's where the truth is. And he said, so what do you do when you go? And I said, well, I go to worship you. Isn't that what you ask? And he said, yeah. And he said, keep going there, and in the process, learn to forgive them because they're my people too. God didn't give me a pink slip and tell me that I could go to another church or that I could act out sexually or leave the church behind. He said that I needed to stay there and learn the process of forgiveness myself as a blessing to myself. And it took three years. Sorry, I'm a slow learner. <laughs> but after three years, there were these two sisters and we were studying the Bible together. And they didn't really like the big church. They liked the smaller black church in my community. And I prayed to God and I said, Lord, do I just take them to the little black church and then go back to mine? And he said, no, it's time for you to go. And so he blessed me. And I went to the head elder of this little black church. He was a 70-year-old man that worked in a factory. And basically the church members were his family. There was about 17 of them. And I said to him, I said, do you have any room in your church for an ex-homosexual, ex-sex addict? And he looked at me and he said, well, have a seat with all the other sinners, Mike. And can you preach every now and then because we don't have a regular preacher? And his reaction to me was completely different. Yeah, yeah. Yep, but you know, I needed to learn the process of forgiveness in that church. And so as I, as I, uh, talk about the transition of the different churches. Let, let me give you a, a, a final illustration and then we'll bring it to a close. Talking about the power of what those men were able to give me. There were only about five men in this church and there was a little guy, um, I would see him walking to the store, he had one leg, his name was Willie. We called him One-Legged Willie. <laughs> that wasn't hard, right? And so I'd see him hobbling to the store and he'd have his groceries and so I'd give him a ride. And he lived in a house that didn't have any running water and so he smelled really bad in my car. And so I invited him, I said, listen, come to my house. I said, you can take a bath and I'll cut your hair and shave your face and I'll make you something hot. And so we did that for a few times. And as we would talk about God, eventually he, I asked him, I said, would you like to go to church with me sometime? And he said, I don't have a suit. And I said, I'll get you a suit. So I went to a second-hand store, got him a suit. We dressed up Willie. You know, I, I work in the beauty industry. I can make him look good. So <laughs> we went to church that week. And ironically, it was communion Sabbath. So I sat him down. I washed his foot. And I tell people that I got 50% off of foot washing that week. <laughs> 
And I didn't expect him to reciprocate because, of course, he was a visitor. But one of the men in that church that came up to me, and there were only five of us in that room, very small church, and he said, Mike, let me serve you. And I said, it isn't necessary. I'm with Willie. And I was so used to rejection from men that I didn't expect anything. I, I, you know, most of the time I was, I was fearful to give a man a hug for fear that he might think that I was copying a feel. But this man, he was moved by the Holy Spirit. He didn't know how to help somebody like me. But the Holy Spirit said, wash that brother's feet. Nobody's serving him. And so he insisted. And so I sat down and he washed my feet. He wasn't afraid to touch me. The Holy Spirit was moving on him. All he said was just some kind, real things. He said, Mike, I love your enthusiasm for Jesus. What a blessing you are in our church. That's all he said. And then as he said that, he started to pray over me. And, and the other men in that room, they were touched by the Holy Spirit too. And they didn't know how to help somebody that came from homosexuality. But the Holy Spirit said, get up and touch that brother. And every one of those men came over to me. And while my brother was praying for me, they just merely put their hand on my shoulder. And as that man prayed for me, they were pr pronouncing over me this masculine blessing. And for the first time in my life, I realized that I wasn't part of the ladies' lunch club anymore. That I was being included by the men. And that brought me great healing. Amen. You know, the Bible says that, that iron sharpens iron. So does the countenance of a man sharpen another one's. And I needed to know how to legitimately be loved by men and to love men in a non-sexual way because that's what God wants us to express to each other. And you know what? The Lord was able to bring that to me. So while the other church cut off that opportunity to help me, isn't it amazing that God still brought me to the point where I could be affirmed by men? And they're still able to do that for me today. We have an obligation. We have a job. It's not our job to, to reject people or to accept them in their sin. Our job is to love them and to show them that God's way is not only truth, but it's got to be better than what they're being given out. Does that make sense? We have to become informed. So thank you for coming. I think that you're starting that process. Let's pray. Can we stand together as we close? Has this been beneficial? Yes. Amen. Amen. All right. Let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the challenges that we have on a daily basis. And my heart is touched by Andrea and the comment that she made that we have to praise you. No, we don't have to, Lord. It's our delight. It's an honor and an opportunity to praise you, Lord, in all things. And how is it, Lord, that we can see our churches crumbling apart and we see the world under attack and we know, Lord, that things are not going to get better. But I praise you, Lord, for the opportunities that we have to not only hear testimonies, but also to experience through your word, Lord, that you have the solution already worked out. How wonderful, Lord, that, that you're not asking us to... <coughs> excuse me, to beat people over the head, but instead, Lord, to offer them something better than what they've experienced. And Lord, had that not happened to me, I wouldn't be here. I'm in awe, Lord, that I'm here at all. And even if you just gave me that freedom, Lord, and allowed me to live in the country until you came, I'd be happy. But to give me a voice, Lord, to be able to tell people around the world your goodness, the power to save, and that that power never came from me, and it never could come from me. But that, Lord, that if we connect people to the power of Jesus Christ, that all kinds of miraculous things can happen, even to a person that's same-sex attracted. And so, Lord, I pray that um, these uh, men and women here today, that they have come with a curiosity, maybe with their own experiences, their own lives. And I pray, Father, that you will begin this journey, and that you will help to equip the church so that we can be able to stand up there. And instead of rejecting, Lord, or accepting, that we can show the redemption that only comes through you, that you would be honored and glorified. And we know, Lord, that when we get that message that there is going to be great um, trials and tribulations for us. But, Lord, thank you 
thank you for the wonderful promises that you've given to us and the opportunities to see lives change. And I pray, Lord, that your kingdom will be full because of these meetings that we have experienced today. May you be honored and glorified forever is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.